Welcome back to the Classical Music Pod, this week coming to you in a slightly altered format with Sam and I separated by a 500 metre stretch of road respecting the government's current guidelines. The beauty of this, of course, is that Sam has no control over what I say in this introduction, so I can reveal with impunity that he hates classical music. The girlfriend he has referenced several times in the past, Nurse Betty, is not actually real, and he stinks. In today's episode, Jess Gillam talks to Sam about her new initiative, the Virtual Scratch Orchestra, what she loves about David Bowie, and why she has denounced the lead singer of The Smiths, Stephen Morrissey. Sam also visits the Meath Epilepsy Charity and speaks to bass Brindley Sherritt, the father of one of its residents, who's organised a charity concert with some of the greatest names in opera. Hey man. Hey man, how's it going? Yeah, it's good. I'm getting some practice done, growing a bad beard. You know, teaching some lessons. Yeah, I'm just doing a lot of cleaning. <laughs> a little bit of piano practice, I hope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah nice. Okay, let me get this project open, and then hopefully we can get cracking. Good. All right. Boom. All right. How was uh, Jess Gillen? She was really good fun to talk to. I think she's really great value, and it's it can only be a positive thing for classical music to have someone like her who's a performer and an educator and a broadcaster and just you know excelling in all of those fields. Here's the recording of our conversation. Small trigger warning, I do play the trumpet really rather badly in this. Classical chat. Classical chat. Classical chat. Classical Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Hello. Hi, is that Jess? It is, yeah. Hi, it's Sam from the Classical Music Pod here. How are you doing? Uh, hi, I'm OK, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Uh, whereabouts are you managing to self-isolate at the moment? I'm at my flat in London, oh, which nice. is very bizarre. Yeah, we're uh, similarly isolating in flats in South London and sort of, I don't know, it all feels rather alien, doesn't it? Yeah, it's so... I'm in Kentish Town, and it's kind of a mixture of... You can tell people aren't taking it too seriously because sometimes it's a bit busy. Mm. And then going out for a walk and it being like the apocalypse. <laughs> it's completely <laughs> bizarre. Yeah. We keep noticing uh, amazing bird song down here. Like, it's yeah. it's just suddenly so present and loud because there's no, you know, traffic and, and aeroplanes and things. Yeah, it's amazing. Am I right in thinking that you've been inviting people into your flat in uh, Kentish Town through sort of live streams and things like that? Yes, yeah, my flatmate and I have been doing some living room live streams and um, just kind of informal playing music together and having a chat with people. And the response has been so lovely, actually. It's been so nice to do. Oh, that's really nice. Has anything gone down particularly well? Um, we played some Mio, Brasileira, which mm. always goes down well. And we also played some Duke Ellington in a sentimental mood, which I think people enjoyed a moment of calm. Oh, yeah, lovely. <laughs> Um, you were scheduled to be dotting around all over the place uh, at the moment, I suppose, but 
that's not possible for the obvious reasons. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing instead, your next big project, the Virtual Scratch Orchestra. Yes, well, everything has been cancelled for the next um, the next few months, unfortunately. But for me, it felt really strange not to be um, playing with people and, and communicating with people through music. Mm. So I thought, how can we get all of these people together somehow? And my my ideal was to get many people to play together at the same time, but the technology is not quite there because of the lag. Uh, so the best way was to kind of glue all the parts together to make a virtual orchestra. Um, and the response has been overwhelming. It's been unbelievable. And the the main, the, the nicest thing is seeing uh, young children from schools um, who say they miss, they're not really that motivated because they're really missing uh, playing in their ensembles and their groups at schools and at their music groups. Uh, and they said it's a really nice thing to be part of. So hopefully yeah. it's working. <laughs> oh, I, I think it's a fantastic idea. I was just wondering if there was anything that tripped that switch for you in the first place. What kind of um, made you suddenly realise, oh, we could do it all online? Well, I was, I was sat at home and I was uh, feeling quite... Um, I was just trying to think of a way where people could unite because it did feel like we were there were so many there are so many people doing live streams which is great because mm. there's there's a lot more access to concerts but I thought the audience aren't really experiencing music in that same way and and have that same level of engagement because there's nothing that can replicate live music and that feeling of being in a concert hall or anywhere, a, a warehouse, a car park, yeah. wherever it is, and, and feeling the live music, feeling the vibrations, feeling the, mm. the connection between the performer and audience. I thought I want a way where this audience who are now at home and really captive, um, <laughs> where they can actively be involved. Uh, so th that was the way I thought of. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one like the opportunity to participate is such a big thing at the moment. Like we can't participate in so much that we usually love doing, and now we can participate in something new, hopefully. So uh, yeah, all all power to you with that idea. Is there anything that made you think that uh, "Where Are We Now" is the track to choose out of all the ones that you've recorded? Uh, for me. Well, David Boy is one of my heroes, and then that was a song I felt was particularly um, relevant right now. Um, he released it after a long period of silence and just kind of did a soft release on the track. Uh, no PR, no big marketing campaign. He just mm. let it out into the wild, and it's just it's it's hauntingly beautiful, and it just feels like a, a reflection on on these strange times it just feels like such an appropriate the lyrics and the melody just feel so appropriate to where we are now because there's of course so much uh desperation and and sadness with everybody being disconnected and us all being inside and and worrying of course the the very negative impacts of the virus but then there's also i think this sense of hope and stillness that we're being united as a a species and that and that people are showing their true humanity in a way so i think there are two sides to it and this song for me seemed to capture both sides of the place we're in now yeah i think you're absolutely right uh, and seeing as we're all uniting there's no standard in particular for submitting a video is there it's not auditioned it's not auditioned. I'm, I'm hoping to include every single entry, uh, regardless of, of the standard. And people have emailed in saying, I hope this makes the cut. I hope this makes the cut. But there's going to be no cut. I want as many people impossible, as possible to be involved and we'll be including all the audio and all the videos. Well, well you haven't heard me yet. Um, 
So if people want to sign up, all the resources and uh, information is available on your website, jessgillamsax.co.uk? Yes, it's all there and all available to download. And there's a step-by-step guide as well. Super. Uh, just to live that for people a little bit, we, I mean, we, we usually get people, uh, their guests, a little bit out of their comfort zone. So we've had uh, operatic sopranos playing the kazoo before and um, <laughs> uh, someone on the swanee whistle. But it's my turn to get out of the comfort zone and try and play my trumpet for the first time in oh I don't know seven and a half years so uh I'm gonna give give the trumpet part to where are we now uh, a little go if you're okay to sort of coach me coach me through it is that all right yeah of course <laughs> fab uh I'm really sorry if this ad's appalling but you know hey uh, <laughs> uh let's give it a go so I will uh in anticipation of this moment I will have got the pdf off of the website i will have got the backing track going and i think that's gonna is it gonna work for us now it might do um and then pop those into my headphones and record from there right yes that's right fab all right here's a first go at some trumpet about so that the trumpet gets to chill out for most of the first half and then comes in about just after two minutes i think so Something like here. And then I get a bit more chill out time and then play a little bit at the end. But Jess, I wonder if you had any top tips for how I could make that a little bit more um, fitting for the rest of the band. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> um, I think um, to think of think of David Bowie's voice and the kind of he has this uh, grit and intensity to his voice at the same time as being quite relaxed. So although it's uh, relatively high, I think a bit of relaxation. Um, might help. Yeah, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing a lot of intensity and not a lot of relaxation at the moment. So. Uh... <laughs> Right, back to uh, real world. Other than, you know, um, having played your trumpet or any instrument more recently than seven years ago, have you got any other top tips for people, you know, trying to fit in with the the David Bowie vibe, that relaxed uh, intensity? I would say listen listen to some of his uh, music and try and absorb a bit of his... Um a bit of his vibe and, and what his creativity was about. Like the amount of music that he made and the difference in that music, he was just, and um, he was like a, a creative magpie. Mm. He looked at what was going on in the in the world and, and found the, the shiny things, the, the most exciting things, and then did, made his own take on everything. Uh, so if you want to get a bit creative with the videos and a bit of Bowie inspiration, I'd be more than happy as well. Oh, fantastic. And with this new medium you've got going 
do you think digital collaboration is something that you're going to try and continue in a post-corona era? Yeah, I think definitely because I I, I couldn't have expected the response at all um, that has that that from right across the world people have been really engaged already. Um, but my dream would be uh, to take this into real life, as it were, sort mm. of maybe set up scratch orchestras um, and try and connect people uh, physically. So when I go and do concerts in places, maybe having a scratch orchestra workshop uh, in, you know, in a few counties across the country and then maybe across the world. Because I think now we're kind of, we're in a way, because we're isolated, I think we're more open to communication yeah. and we've realised how important it is and how important collaboration is. So, mm. I'd, yeah, I'd like to continue it digitally but also in the real world is that something you think you can incorporate into your educational and social stuff i know you're working with the harrison parrot foundation yes yeah that's what i'm hoping i'm hoping to develop a model where i will go and do a concert but also be able to do um a saxophone and music workshop and then maybe set up a scratch orchestra in different places and to also take that to places where uh, people may not have had any access to music at school or they may not have had the opportunity to learn an instrument. Uh, we could have a, you know, have, this could be a, a multi, multi-layered thing. It could be absolute beginners, another David Bowie song also. Uh, it could be absolute beginners um, and then a, a more advanced orchestra. But I think it's a model that might, it might end up working one day. <laughs> I'm going to try and listen to a few slipping other uh, Bowie songs in as answers as we go. Have you got any... Uh, have you had any observations or evidence about how this is, you know, Corona is affecting music education? I think it's it's kind of it's devastating. Um, in, in you know, in the as I was saying before, young children or any children and young people aren't being able to play together, which is one of the most amazing things about music. It's the community spirit and the learning mm. from other people and the cooperation. But I've seen some amazing initiatives also digitally, um, which I'm hoping might reach out to children who might not have thought about doing it at school, but then um, because it's available online and there's content available online, maybe they'll be inspired. But it's, yeah, it's again, it's the two sides. There's great stuff going on digitally, but at the same time, it, it, you know, communication and collaboration physically is also super important. Yeah, I've been uh, trying to teach some Zoom singing lessons lately and it's, it's hard. Like, it's a different thing. It's a lovely thing, but it is a different thing. Yeah, my, my housemate um, is bass player and he's doing a lot of online teaching and it's great and in some ways the younger students concentrate more because they're having to focus on a screen and they can't they can't just chat and go off one because it's quite concentrated (laughs) but on the other hand music's so physical and Mm. um emotional and i don't think you get that same connection over a screen no not yet anyway um no not yet we might get there (laughs) maybe I mean, you've got this quite amazing itinerant life where you're rocking up and making music with so many different people and, you know, you get a lot of connection and communication with people. When when that's happening in real life rather than digitally, do, what are the signs that this is going to be a good collaboration, that this is going to be a... we're going to communicate well for you? I think more than anything, it's about personal personal connections to people because at the end of the day music is just another form it's like a heightened speech it's just another form of communication so if if you i find if if you don't get on with somebody on a personal level and have a a connection to them it's really difficult to make music with them because you're trying to then uh communicate without speaking and on Mm. a, a more um on a heightened level so for me it's about people's kind of 
not emotional capacity, but the the way that you get on with them as people, I think. Yeah, that sort of those little tells and cues, uh, hi- yeah. like emotional hygiene, isn't it? Can sort of yes, <laughs> yeah, show someone up. Um, I like when I was growing up, I had what I would describe as a digital relationship with Winter Marcellus in that I consumed every single bit of YouTube content there was about him and, uh, you know, every little Spotify bit or whatever. It sounds like David Bowie was a big part of, of your um, digital music making. But is there anyone who you've gone from having a digital relationship with to now working with in real life? Um, well, actually, really recently, I met uh, David Bowie's bass player um, oh. and did an interview with her, and that was really, really fantastic. Because she, I'd also watched. She's called Gayline Dorsey, and I'd watched what I've, I'd watched lots of videos of her when I was younger, and yeah, as you say, I'd kind of um, idolised David Bowie. But then also, saxophonist called Barbara Thompson. I'd watched all of her videos, looked at her life, read books about her, and then ended up uh, collaborating with her. And she wrote me a piece, and and that's oh. just was kind of really bizarre when you meet when you meet people that you've watched so much about. <laughs> it's kind of a strange feeling when you meet them, but it's, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Do you get starstruck at all, or have you got past that? I get no. I get really nervous. To be honest, I think I get nervous meeting new people anyway, kind of yeah. regardless of who they are. Um, I think. Uh, because I, I care what people think in a, in a kind of self-centered way. I kind of care what people think about me, so I get nervous to meet them. But on the other hand, I, I really love meeting people and, and asking questions. But yeah, I, I, so I, I guess I do get a bit starstruck in a way, but no more than I would if I was meeting the neighbor next door. <laughs> right, yeah, I get you, I get you. Um, in February, I think you wrote a really good letter to The Guardian, thanks for that, about music education. Uh, you included a shout out to the excellently named Barracuda's Carnival Band. Yes, is, yes, that's where I started. It's like the best ensemble name I've ever heard. I'm going to start naming <laughs> everything I'm involved with after Cool Dangerous Fish. Uh, do, you, do you feel it's your responsibility as a high profile performer to champion music education or is it something that you, you know, would have done anyway, do you think? I think it is a responsibility, especially because I had so many amazing opportunities when I was younger that now no longer exist. So the Barracudas that you mentioned, that was where I started playing when I was seven. And that was a free centre for people to uh, learn music, to learn dance, stilts, um, hmm. drums. And had had that not been there, I don't know when I would have started playing the saxophone, if at all. Yeah. And then I had a brilliant local scheme, the primary tuition scheme at the local high school, which has now had its funding cut. And for me, every every child should have at least the opportunity to learn music um, and to be able to learn an instrument. And if there's anything at all that I can do to try and help that and to try and change that, I absolutely want to to do that and I and, and I do feel that it's a responsibility when I've been lucky enough to have those opportunities you know it's kind of yeah. it would be really selfish to then kind of keep that information and keep those opportunities and not try and make them available for other people I think yeah I'm imagining a, a parallel universe where you walk into the stilts class instead and we've got Jessica like BBC stilts player, uh, stilts well, player? Stilts I, I tried absolutely everything and I was so terrible my dancing was like you would not believe that I was able to count rhythm now if you'd have ever saw me try to dance or drum <laughs> amazing amazing and being a standard bearer for not just classical music education but you know all sorts of things now the classical saxophone repertoire 
digital music making, Ulverston. Um, is there anything in your day-to-day life that you refuse to take responsibility for? <laughs> How do you mean? Uh, I mean, uh, I've lived with housemates who will refuse to take responsibility for cleaning the kitchen. You know, uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. That's Milo, you're a good girl. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I, to be, I'm not. I'm not the tidiest person in the world. Um, and it took me forever to start cleaning my saxophone properly. Okay. Um, which I, I didn't take responsibility for that soon enough. Um, but now I've really championed the saxophone pull through. <laughs> <And really, laughs> right. So there, there were gaps in the armour before. Fisher, you're making it up. Why aren't you using the Encoder app like everyone else? What's Encoder? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe for just £9.99 a month to access the complete sales and hire catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, Chester and Novello. But what if I want to write on my score with a pencil? Yeah, you can annotate the score with Encoder and share your markings with everyone else. So Simon Rattle literally called it the future of music making, duh. How do you spell Encoder? Not that again. From the top, gents. N-K-O-D-A. <laughs> nice. Um, I thought we could finish up with a sort of quick fire round, a bit like Mastermind, if you're up for that. Oh, great, yeah. Um, sort of, you know, one-wordy, punchy answers. It's, uh, oh, God, I'm terrible at these. Oh, don't stress, because you can leave a massive gap and then we can cut it out, because that's the magic of podcasts. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, the Times described you as spreading joy. What are you more likely to spread on your toast in the mornings? Butter. <laughs> Adolf Sachs developed the saxophone. If you could have any invention named after you, what would it be? Oh, my God. The Gilgog? Oh, what would it do? Uh, <laughs> it would be windscreen wipers for the glasses. Ah, good one. If there's one piece of classical saxophone repertoire you don't think we'll know but you'd like us to know, what is it? Um, False Vanity by Rudy Weedoft. Ooh, don't know that. I'll go and seek it out. Uh, comedian Chris Addison is a big fan of yours. Which non-musician do you take inspiration from? Um... Mallory Blackman. Oh, nice. Who's the most interesting guest you've had on This Classical Life? Oh, that's such a mean question. Yeah, I know. We won't tell them. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to say um, Sam Becker because he's my best friend, so it would be quite harsh not to say that. Nice. Uh, more controversially, who was the most boring? Oh, no, 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 no. I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right, yeah. Well... I, I refuse. I refuse. Fair enough. <laughs> You've said you'd like to see more clapping in between movements. Can you perform an excerpt of Steve Reich's clapping music for us? Um, I can try. <laughs> it's a very short excerpt. very excerpt. short excerpt. That was perfect. Uh, do you relax away from music or with it? Uh, a mixture. Yeah, a mixture. Nice. You love The Smiths. Do you have a favourite song? Oh, I've now divorced my love for The Smiths because Morrissey's gone crazy. Great. I, mean, I used to absolutely love them. I had a six-foot poster of Morrissey and really kind of doted on them. And then he's just he's just too mad now. 
I think uh, we're in a similar camp. You're from Ulverston in Cumbria and still run a concert series there? Yes. Do you know which of the iconic comedy duo Laurel and Hardy was born there? Stan Laurel. Very good. Ulverston is home to the UK's A, deepest, B, widest, C, shortest canal. Shortest. It's actually false D, deepest, widest and shortest. No way! Oh no, sorry, trick question. Bowie bonus questions. Bowie was a great collaborator, as you've said, working with, amongst others, Brian Eno, Queen, Tina Turner and Mick Jagger. If you could pick one of those four to collaborate with, who would it be? Brian Eno. Yeah, good answer. Oh, or maybe Queen, maybe Queen. Brian Eno or Queen. Maybe he could produce and Queen could write, you know, who knows. David Bowie <laughs> has... David Bowie had an androgynous spaceman alter ego called Ziggy Stardust. Do you ever fantasise about having an alter ego and what would they be called? Um... Um... I wouldn't say I ever fantasised about it, but if I did, it would be, uh, uh, oh God, Rocco someone. Oh, nice. Yeah. I like Rocco. I think that could work. David Bowie recorded a song, Safe in This Sky Life, for the Rugrats movie, a song that was cut from the final edit, which seems completely mad. If you could record a song for a children's cartoon, which one would it be? A Bowie song. Yeah, or uh, an original. Which cartoon would you would you want to record for? The Simpsons. Yeah. I mean, surely that's possible. You could get yourself a little guest slot, ring someone up. I mean, Lisa plays saxophone, so yeah. I've got a connection. Oh, this is possible. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I mean, that's, that's the end of our quickfire round. Thank you so much, Jess. That was really fun. No, thanks for having me. Thank you. Pleasure. Um, you know, best of luck with the virtual orchestra and, um, you know, virtual scratch orchestra. And, uh, you know, hope to hear more from it in the future. Thank you and take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. In self-isolation, there's no conversation. My one consolation, model transportation. I have a thing where I make models of buses. You got a pick-a-pocket or two. Vesti la Gioba from Ruggiero e Leoncavallo's opera Pagliacci, written in 1891. Freddie Mercury's It's a Hard Life written in 1984. Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, written in 1938. Freddie Mercury's It's a Hard Life, written in 1984. You got to pick a pocket or two. What a nice lady Jess Gillum is. Big fan of her. If you're interested in taking part in the virtual scratch orchestra, there's a link to the relevant web page in the description below. In the second half of this episode, we'd like to take a step back and focus our lens on a story that you might not have come across in the papers or on the broadcast media, 
This week we've got a little feature that Sam recorded a while back about a fundraising concert connected to Glyndebourne, Brindley Sherritt and the Meath Epilepsy Charity. Does it use the nice clarinet music? Yes, it does. Sam, things are beginning to look a bit bleak in the classical music world and I'm in need of something that's going to warm my heart. Well, I've got a story that's just the thing. For sure, it's got a whole host of Britain's operatic superstars in. Why, yes, it is centred around an exceptional epilepsy charity near Godalming. But at its core, this story is about a dad, Brindley, trying to do his best for his daughter, Amy. Today we're going to find out quite a lot about Amy and the challenges she lives with. But first I thought we could hear a bit about what her passions are. She loves all sorts of creative arts and acting. Here's her saying hello in her much-practised American accent. Um, hi there, my name's Amy Shirt. I'm from California. Um, you guys are doing awesome stuff here. Um, I really gotta put it in status because um, this is... Um, She's a young woman who loves nature and in particular bird watching, something she's gotten her dad into. The inspiration for the bird watching and any kind of wildlife you can think of, I love to bits when I see it. But much like her dad, her favourite way to express herself is through singing. When it comes to singing, for me, I, I just I adore singing so much. But when I'm, the feelings I get when I'm going through that are so much enjoyment. I. Amy's dad isn't just an occasional amateur bird watcher. He's one of Britain's busiest and bassiest bass soloists, Brindley Sherratt. I warn you, after listening to Brindley talk, you may find your own speaking voice a little fluty and tinny. That's certainly the case for me. Chances are you may have already heard him singing really rather low on Radio 3, as Zarastro or John Claggett or Fafner, probably from the Royal Opera House, English National Opera or Glyndebourne. That's his professional life. But his offstage role has been as dad to Amy, who more than many daughters is a little vulnerable, and that's because of her complex epilepsy. I asked Brindley about how, as a family, they became aware of Amy's epilepsy and how it has influenced all of their lives. She, the root cause of her epilepsy was that when she was a baby, well, she was fine for the first six months, but once we started to introduce solid food, she started to get very, very sick, and nobody knew why. And she would start to be sick every day, and, but she was wasting away, and we were in and out of hospital. And she was getting thinner and more and more miserable. Then eventually one day I went into her room in the morning and she couldn't get up. She'd lost the use of her left side, she'd had a stroke. So she couldn't smile with half a face and she couldn't use her arm or her leg. And I thought, oh my God, what is this? So we took her to the local hospital and they said, we have absolutely no idea what this is. You need to go to Great Ormond Streets. So we went there with probably within about two days. Um, and then we lived there for two weeks on sort of camp beds on a ward whilst they did lots of tests on Amy. After about a week, they said, you know, the bad news is she has had a major neurological event uh, and she will have some difficulties. The physical side of it will get better uh, to a large extent, uh, but she probably will have some learning difficulties. 
not epilepsy at that point. But the good news is we know what it is and we know how to treat it. And they changed her diet, gave her some medication, and in half an hour she smiled for the first time in about four months. Wow. And she was a happy little thing, and uh, we were over the moon. But the medication she's on is very specialized. And as she's got older and bigger, she needs more of it. She now takes 60 tablets a day. 60? 60 tablets for the metabolic condition that she has to control her metabolism. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a urea cycle disorder, so she needs help digesting protein and foods and things like that. So the tablets help doing that. And she has a special diet. And the, the epilepsy, the thing is with the metabolic side of it, we've sort of got the hang of that. Mm-hmm. And she's got the hang of that. And it's complicated, but it doesn't really interrupt her life too much. But the epilepsy, which started when she was about 11, quite mildly, but now she has probably an average of about 8 to 10 seizures a day of their complex partial seizures. They're not uh, tonic-clonic, drop to the floor ones but they're quite disruptive and exhausting for her, which means she has to be watched 24 hours a day. She can't use public transport, she can't go out alone, she can't cook by herself. She was, she used to be able to ride a bike and do all those things, but as, this, as the epilepsy has increased, her life has become very limited. Sense of independence. Up until age 22, we, she was with us at home, we were supporting her, uh, which was exhausting for her and for us. And then from 25 onwards, it, it gets very, very tricky for people in Amy's position. And there are very, very few options. Well, that sounds like a huge amount for any family to have to deal with. I don't think many people would have guessed that the person we heard at the beginning was coping with all of that. No, you wouldn't. And I think that a big part of Amy's confidence and certainly her opportunities for creativity come from spending her time at The Meath. We're going to hear from Helen, who's part of the team at The Meath, explaining a bit about this rather special charity. They host 82 residents and 30 day centre visitors who have complex epilepsy, helping these extraordinary people to lead normal, fulfilled lives. Here's Helen explaining how that's made possible. Um, That's right, so we're a specialist care home for people with highly complex epilepsy and because of the complexity of their epilepsy they would usually have a learning disability or physical disability or both in addition. So epilepsy in itself isn't actually a disability, in its complex form it it can be extremely debilitating. Um, But the people we support have a dedicated team of obviously support workers, they're carers, We have on-site medical staff. The team are absolutely amazing at making sure everyone has access to the right medication. They're under sort of constant review. They have physiotherapy to keep themselves as physically able and active as possible. All of that is dealt with so seamlessly, really, that the people we support are then able to take part in so many really life-enriching activities at the skills centre. The skill centre Helen just mentioned provides activities for the Meath's residents, opportunities to take part in arts and crafts, dramatic productions and even upcycling furniture. The guys aren't just sat watching television or, you know, in a room cooking. They are just having the most fun by doing all sorts of things, whether it's singing or art or working in the cafe that the, the Meath have got down in Godwin. It's really good. That was the voice of Phoebe, 
who runs the crown jewel of the Meath's creative activities, their choir. Phoebe describes herself as... I'm Godaming, born and bred. Um, Brindley describes her as... She's an extraordinary person. She is a bundle, a little bundle of creative energy. And when you watch her in front of the choir, um, it's a unique gift. Actually, I've not seen that amount of commitment and love for the people and so motivated to bring the best out of them. Of course, this is a room full of people who she's supporting. They have complex epilepsy and learning disabilities. And yet she is so skilled at getting the very best out of each and every person in the room. And in the room, of course, are also the amazing volunteers that we have from Godwin and Guildford Jazz Choir, as well as our own staff. And they, they work together. It's, it's the sort of illustration of everyone at the Meath working together for a sort of mutual cause. Okay, so how does it differ running a choir for people with that range of needs? Phoebe did mention that she includes Makaton, which isn't sign language but is a gestural reinforcement of speech in each of their rehearsals. I asked her if there was such a thing as a standard rehearsal with the choir. Um, is there such a thing as a normal rehearsal with the Meath Choir? No, not really. Um... There, there's a structure that we tend to try and stick to, but things change every single week. Every single week there's something new that happens. And one day I was having a conversation with a guy called Sean, who is a resident here, and he can't speak, he's mute. And he was really interested in coming along to the choir, but we'd never really kind of considered that that was a possibility. So I said, no, yeah, absolutely, come along and we'll get you conducting or we'll get you doing something. And then I started to learn or pick up bits and pieces of Makaton. So now we are able to sign and sing all at the same time. So I sit there playing the piano, badly trying to sign, sing and play the piano all at the same time, which is quite a feat in itself. But yeah. yeah. And do they include Makaton in performance? Absolutely. Phoebe told me a bit about how it brought something a little extra special to their Christmas carol concert. Christmas. There's, um, the, the Meath put on a Christmas concert each year at St Clement Danes Church on the Strand. And this year we sang a song called Hallelujah. It's a, it, was, it was a little bit of a spur of the moment thing, but I turned around to the audience and, and showed them the Makaton for Hallelujah. And everyone in the audience and everybody singing on stage and the band behind were all doing the Makaton as we sang Hallelujah. So everyone in the room was, was present and, and performing in one way or another and interacting with people who, you know, even if they can't sing, then you're singing with them because you're signing with them. So that was massive. I mm. think that was a massive moment for, for everyone. That was really cool. Gosh, that's really moving, isn't it? One of those moments where music can really transport everybody there together. So have Amy and Brinley performed together? They have, in another one of these carol services. But most exciting is that they've got a performance coming up together. Originally scheduled for the 5th of April, 
Bringing Down the House is a fundraising concert that will have not just Brindley and the Meath Choir performing on Glyndebourne's main stage, but also a whole galaxy of operatic stars. And what a list, Yvonne Howard, Sally Matthews, Danielle Denise, Louise Alder, Barry Banks, Sophie Bevan, Alan Clayton, Jacques Simbrello, Mark Padmore, CBE, Sir John Tomlinson, CBE. It's quite a hefty night out. Brindley told me a bit about how it all came together, including securing one of Britain's most prestigious venues over fish and chips. Well, it all started two years ago, oddly enough, when I was at Glyndebourne doing Rosenkavalier, singing Ox. And um, we had something from the, through the post from the Meath, and it was a wish list. And it was a little booklet. And it said, for each of the houses here, I don't know how many are, maybe half a dozen different houses here on the Meath site, and each house had listed what they quite liked, ranging from a toaster, <laughs> uh, a multi-chef, up to a people carrier. And um, I was flicking through this, and um, my wife said to me, well, why don't you just do a concert, do a fundraiser concert, so they can maybe buy a people carrier? Mm. I sat on it for a few days and then I went into Glyndebourne and I just chatted to a few singers who were working there at the same time, Sarah Connolly. I think Alan was floating around as well at the time and I, was, I just had a conversation with Mark Padmore about another project. And whilst I was chatting to them, I just said, do you know if I did a concert for the Meath where Amy is? And they all, they all know Amy. One of the things about this list of singers, they all know me, yes, but they also know Amy and they know our family. And then I asked a few more, just asking around, I thought, well, I'll sort of spread the net a little bit. And then everybody uh, I asked said yes, of course. And everybody bar one was free. Amazing. On the day that I wanted, which is extraordinary. Mm. Uh, But then I had singers call me up, like Lou, Alder, and then she said, why haven't you asked me? So I said, well, if you want to, but I can't. The more singers I have, the less you will have to do. You know, yeah. I want to make it worth your while. She said, I don't care. And the same with Sophie Bevan. She called me and said, is this happening or not? So we were, it was incredibly humbling and very touching for us as a family. And then my wife said to me, well, what about asking girls about Glamboy? Well, I took Gus out to lunch in his own canteen. And uh, we had fish and chips on Friday. And he said, I told him about the concert and the idea and who I'd got on board so far. And he said, do you want the site? And he said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. When we had our first summit meeting, and in fact we had 13 people around the table. It's a big team. And they said, you know, what can we do to help? That was extraordinary. And I'm still, I'm still recovering from that. Uh, and I, yes, I said, now I still wake up at night. And now I feel, at the moment, at this point, <laughs> I feel just a terrific burden that I've got all these people who've given so much to us in this project that I, I hope they enjoy it. That's my, that's just the kind of person. The Phoebe and team are obviously very excited then. Certainly. But unlike most of us who get a bit nervous, if we're honest, because the big worry is we'll damage our ego by not performing how we'd like, 
there are rather more serious concerns for some of the Meath choir members when stepping out on stage. You'll hear from Amy and two of her fellow choir members, the West Country's biggest Elvis fan, Sharon, and, improbably, a voice even lower than Brindley's, Danny, the friendliest bass in town, tells us how he overcomes those challenges. My legs shake quite easily when I do it. Um, I've got a mixture of... uh, I think when I feel the whole body shaking like that, I think it's a mixture of high excitement and nerves because I know what my passion is and always have known that feeling. Um, But that's that kind of... I find a bit difficult at times like that because... I, that can easily trigger a seizure on me and I will never want seizures triggered when I'm actually performing like that. So. Yeah, and it just worries me sometimes because yeah. I don't know when I'm going to start singing away or whether I'm going to go into one of my whatnots. I start singing away or whatever and then all of a sudden I stare. I stop singing and I stare you in the face. Or I might just fiddle my fingers because I don't feel it in me head. I just all of a sudden go. This mind over matter. Um, as a bass, mm-hmm. you are often cast as the father figure. Yeah. You're probably playing dads before you were one. Are there any particularly good role models in the operatic or oratorio world that you've learnt from by playing them? Yeah. There are roles that I really act, because I'm not really like Clegger, I'm not really <laughs> like Baron Ox. Um, having said that, if you're doing a role that is truly noble, who's... I'm about to go to Munich next week to do Boris Godot to do Tsukimen. That is a role I love as an old man who's seen a lot of life, who, before he dies, wants to make sure that the truth is written about and told about how the present Tsar became Tsar and what was done in his... Mm-hmm. And I know what happened. And he wants to write it down and document it and make sure that that truth is passed on. And that's his burden throughout the whole opera. And he's really tenacious. You must record this. And if I can't finish it, you must finish it for me. He's really tenacious and very patient. He doesn't lose it. Mm. But he just presents the truth as it is at the end. And it's it's an amazing moment. That's Piman. I, I like him. Uh, last week I did Fidelio. Um, and I sing Rocco. Rocco, again, is a guy who's been beaten around a bit. He's been abused by the, the boss. and uh, But he's got a rotten job as the jailer. But, in the end of the opera, he actually becomes the hero. He stands up to the evil guy and um, uh, tells the truth and presents the case of Fidelio and her husband, Floristan, to the governor, the, the guy, the big guy in charge, to say, this is an injustice and this needs to be sorted out. And he fights for them. So, again, I love that kind of nobility. I'm trying to think of all the others ones I do. I was yeah. thinking about um, Manoa in Samson. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, as a dad. As a dad. Yeah, to put something right and to, and to do something about it. I mean, I, now I can say that as a dad, 
for Amy, the thing that really irks me at times is sometimes the stuff that she has to endure that I can't do anything about yeah. and that I can't control. And as a dad, that's really terrible to, know, to watch your daughter go through pain and not understanding the world and be incredibly vulnerable emotionally, physically, in life. She needs wisdom to give it to her and she needs protection. And sometimes I can't always be there to give that. Crikey. I mean, I do some dodgy characters as well. <laughs> um, is there anyone, the anyone, anyone who we shouldn't emulate? You shouldn't emulate. Don't emulate John Claggett in Billy Bard. Uh, he's a guy with issues. <laughs> Big issues. Uh, Baron Ox is a bit of a lech. No, don't do him. And are we going to get any of these on the, uh, on the 5th of April? I'm singing something lighter. I'm going to sing something in Shanted Evening from South Pacific. John, Tom and I are going to do the policeman song between us. <laughs> and then Mark Padmore and John, Tom and I are going to sing Three Little Maids. <laughs> so, um, the, so I'm having a bit of fun on that day. Yeah. Um, I think you'll do well. Unfortunately, due to these unprecedented times, bringing down the house has been delayed. It's been pushed back until April the 11th next year. If the uptake for the delayed event is anything like it was going to be this year, then it will be a huge fundraising step towards all sorts of creative projects, including supporting music therapy, of which Brindley is a huge advocate and patron. But fundraising is a huge issue for all at the Meath and anyone living with circumstances like Amy's. It was a bit of a battle. The Meath came and said she'd be perfect at the Meath, but getting local authority funding is, uh, is not for the faint-hearted. It's a very difficult process yeah. to persuade your local authority that your daughter is totally dependent, really. And that yeah. burden of application is on you? Yes. Yeah, you have to fight and then fight some more. And then staff change and then you have to fight a whole another battle with another lot of people. It's a, it's, and we are reasonably competent, intelligent, and we are resourced. Uh, there are many more families out there that are not. We were able to fight and get some support hmm. uh, and eventually got there. But I fear for the many people that don't have that, those kind of resources who would never be able to experience something as good as this. This is quite unique. Yeah. There aren't many places like this in the country. It's really useful. Also, thank you. I think that what that final thought from Brindley brought home to me is that every family that finds themselves in these sort of circumstances is going to try and do the best they can. And if they encounter any unnecessary barriers, making that process of securing personal funding more difficult, we need to tear them down as quickly as possible. The Meath is in a fortunate position with its local area funding at the moment, keeping them afloat and providing care for their residents even during these testing corona times. We should all be grateful for that and grateful that when some sense of normalcy returns, that people like Brindley and other extraordinarily generous folks will be helping to fundraise to enrich the lives of the Meath's residents and visitors. That combination of government funding and extra fundraising is vital. The fact that Amy's family have these extraordinary talents and help with that fundraising is wonderful. But... It's only because they were able to find a way through the individual fundraising maze that Brindley described that Amy is able to receive a wonderful level of care at the Meath. As a society, wouldn't we want Amy to have all of those things? The medical support, 
the creative outlets, the fulfilling friendships and life, even if her family, for whatever reason, hadn't been able to negotiate that individual fundraising battle. Surely, the next step for us as a broader society is to increase the ease of access to facilities providing this level of care. Let's help those people working hard to stretch local area budgets as far as possible. Make their lives easier by giving them more money to award and as streamlined a process as we can. If COVID-19 is teaching us anything, it's that we may all need that lifeline, that security net, irrespective of our current circumstances. Bringing down the house, now on April the 11th, 2021, demonstrates what happens when this particular extraordinary dad, Brindley Sherratt, corrals support for an amazing institution like the Meath. It will raise money, bring a moment of true joy to the Meath choir, and I bet that people carrier is covered. But perhaps even more importantly, it will raise awareness for all those ordinary families living with this extraordinary condition up and down the UK and add to the chorus of voices calling for ease of access and extra support for social care. Not everyone's dad is Manoa, but they'll be doing their best and they could do with a bit more help. That's it for another episode. We'll be back shortly, I'm sure. Big thank you to Jess for speaking to us. That was really great to get her on the pod. And also a huge thank you to Brinley and Amy Sherritt and everyone at the Meath. And finally, Tim, a quick thank you to you for doing all the editing on this pod. So hats off to you. It's a pleasure. Give me all in my lamp, keep me burning. I agree with Nick. I agree with Gordon. I agree with every single word. You must have a consensus.